Well, as I said a moment ago, we're uh, concluding our series of sermons through, throughout this summer, now into fall, on the uh, minor prophets. And I hope you've enjoyed our study as much as I have. We've tried to uh, make all of these ancient prophets apply somehow to us today and their message apply to us as Christians. And we've come to the final of the 12 prophets, the uh, book of Malachi. So we'll turn there today as we get started. And once again, there are many themes that we could have taken from this book. Of course, uh, right at the very end, he's the last prophet of the Old Testament, the last book of the Old Testament. So I think what God meant to do here was to let him be the bridge right into the New Covenant or the New Testament. And sure enough, in the last chapter, he talks about the coming of Elijah that God was going to send, who turned out to be John the Baptist, who kind of led us right into the New Testament. And that prophecy was fulfilled by John the Baptist, the Elijah to come that would... uh, draw the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. And he prepared the way for Jesus, of course. So God set it up perfectly. But let's pause for prayer. Lord, thank you so much as we open our Bibles today. We sometimes take for granted the fact that we can understand what this ancient book says. But we know that it's only through the help of the Holy Spirit that we can understand So open our minds, open our eyes, open our hearts to take in what we discuss here today and uh, help us to see the application for us personally as members of the church in the year 2020. The message is timeless. So thank you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll turn to Malachi chapter 1. Malachi was the last prophet of the Old Testament. We know that uh, we had been preaching the past couple of weeks about Judah coming out of captivity, finally, after they had been in prisoner of war camps, so to speak, for up to 70 years. They were coming back gradually to the Holy Land, back to Jerusalem. By the year 516 B.C., more Jews were returning to the Holy Land from captivity, and the... uh, The temple was pretty much, at least the foundation and the basic parts of it, was rebuilt by that year, 516. Of course, it didn't look anything like it would eventually look in Jesus' day because it continued to be uh, improved upon. And it was especially Herod the Great, the one in charge, the ruler during Jesus' day and just prior to Jesus' day, who really put a lot of work and effort into it. But at least the temple was there, uh, it was usable. But here's the bad news. After 70 years in captivity, God finally allows the Jews to come back to the Holy Land and they fall into sin once more, if you can believe it. Uh, Malachi lists some of the problems here and he's trying to stir up the people to say, hey, we just came out of this time of suffering because of our sins and you're falling back into it again. So some of the things that he mentions are tithes were ignored by the people who were commanded to pay tithes. The Sabbath was being broken. The people had intermarried with pagan foreigners and it was leading them away from God in religion. The priests had become corrupt. Worship at the temple had denigrated into meaningless rituals 
and the people forgot God's law. So let's see what God inspired Malachi to say to the people. Malachi 1, beginning in verse 6. This is what God says. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am the father, with a capital F, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my reverence, says the Lord of hosts? To you priests who despise my name, yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? You offered defiled food on my altar. So, you know, the people as sin offerings and praise offerings were to bring animals and have them sacrificed at the altar. And they were supposed to be the best that you could bring, the best that you owned. But they were bringing animals and other sacrifices that were poor quality. So he says, you offer defiled food on my altar, but you say, in what way have we defiled you? By saying the table of the Lord is contemptible. And when you offer the blind animals as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and sick animals, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? He goes on to say in verse 9, but now entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us while this is being done by your hands. Will he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? Who is there even among you who would shut the doors so that you would not kindle fire on my altar in vain? So God is saying, what's happening in your worship of me is so hap haphazard and half-hearted that I'd kind of prefer that you lock the door to the temple. and Don't let anybody come in and offer this cheap stuff to me. He says, I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from your hands. For from the rising of the sun, even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. In every place, incense shall be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it. In that you say, the table of the Lord is defiled, and its fruit, its food is contemptible. You also say, oh, what a weariness. And you sneer at it, says the Lord of hosts, that you bring the stolen animals, the lame, the sick. Thus you, you bring an offering. Should I accept this from your hand, says the Lord? But cursed be the deceiver who has in his flock a male and makes a vow, but sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among the nations. Now, why did I pick this passage? Well, it has to do with worship. And you know what? Over the years, as I've been a minister, there have been times where I wonder when we come not only every week to worship God, but when we worship him just in our, our daily lives throughout the week, if we're giving God our best, if we are looking at him as who he truly is, certainly deserving and worthy of our honor and the highest respect, I wonder if our worship of God is always acceptable to him. Uh, I think what Malachi is talking about here is the sin of what I'll call careless worship. Careless worship. As opposed to careful worship. 
We want to make sure that when we worship God, not only here every Sunday, but throughout the week in our own personal lives, we want to make sure that our worship of God is careful and not careless. Let me give you a definition here. Careless worship, and that's what the Jews were practicing here as they came back from captivity. Careless worship is a failure to see and feel the greatness of God. Careless worship is a failure to see and feel the greatness of God. And I wonder sometimes, as I look back over my years in the church, some here have had 55 years in the church, I'm sure that there have been times in my personal life where my worship of God has not been careful and it has tended to be more careless. And I wonder sometimes when I've come to church, (laughs) different things have happened. I've come in in a bad attitude. I've come distracted. And I wonder if my worship was really even acceptable to God. And I wonder if there have been times, and there probably have been, where God was trying to get the point across to me that, you know what, if you're going to come here to worship me in that attitude and involved in all that other stuff, rather than seeing me for who I am today as the great God worthy of honor and worship, maybe it might be best for you not to come either. You know, God wants us to give him our best, and he deserves it. (laughs) When we consider who he is and what he has done for us, okay? Not only is he the creator of the universe, but he gave us life. He drew us to a relationship with himself through Jesus Christ. He has promised us now, we have the promise of eternal life. He has wiped away our sins. He is worthy of all of our praise. He's worthy of all of our worship. So careless worship is the failure to see and feel the greatness of God. Every week when we come here, we should come with a certain sense of awe and respect and worship. You know, we started not too long ago to have what we call the call to worship video. Because sometimes we come into church here and we've had a rough week. Maybe we don't feel all that great. We've had trials and, and troubles this past week and we've got a lot on our mind. Uh, we come to church, people are trying to call us on the cell phone as we're coming to church and they want us to come here or come there or do this, do that. And you just have to cut time out of your week and say, no, this time is going to be for God. God needs this from me and I need this from God. And I know there have been times where you just have to kind of force your way out of the house or force your way out of all of the responsibilities you have to be here. And I appreciate that. And I understand that. But God deserves that. So how does careless worship happen? It, it's not only a failure to see the greatness of God, but a failure to see the precious gift of our calling. Because you're very special to God. You have been called by him. Look here in uh, Malachi 1, chapter 1 and verse 2. Malachi chapter 1 and verse 2. Something interesting God says here. He's speaking to to the Jews and he says to them in verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord. And their reaction is, yet you say, in what way have you loved us? 
Imagine saying that to God. We as Christians today should never let a response like that come out of our lips because we should know very well how God has loved us. God so loved the world that he sent his only son to be the atonement for our sins and so many other things. But notice the, the attitude. In what way have you loved us? And God says something very interesting here. He doesn't say because he forgave them and he cared for them and he provided for them and he was patient with them. Even, all those things, even though all those things were true, this is what he said. In what way have I loved you? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord, yet Jacob I have loved. He said, I put you, Israel, in a very special relationship with me. I chose you. I've worked with you over the course of centuries now. I could have given the same blessings that I gave you to Esau instead of to Jacob, but I chose Jacob, and I've blessed you, and I've worked with you low these centuries. It had to do with a relationship, with a calling. God tells his people that he loves them, and the, the main example that he calls attention to is the fact that it was your forefather Jacob and not Esau, Jacob's brother, that I blessed. God chose you and not the others for a special relationship. And you know, I want you to get that point today. We, have, we live in a whole world where I would say probably the majority of people don't have regard for God. You know, even in America today, unfortunately, there are people, so many people who don't have time for God, who aren't interested in God, who have convinced themselves that God doesn't even exist. They don't want God in their life because they don't want anybody telling them what to do, what, what they can and cannot do. And they don't necessarily like to hang around Christian people because sometimes Christian people embarrass them because Christian people tend to do the right thing and say the right thing instead of the wrong thing. They're honest, they try to keep the law, and so on and so forth. There's a lot of people in our society today like that. And I've often wondered, why am I here and not those other people? I know I'm not better than they are. But you know what? In some way, I've been called by God to be here. He has called me. He has opened my mind and my heart to understand his word and to take it in and to try to live it to the best of my ability. And the same thing applies to you. You are here. There's millions of people out there who have no concern for God today. Why are you here? Because God has called you. God has chosen you. You know, Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 44, he said that no one can come to him unless the Father who has sent him draws us to Jesus. There has been a very special drawing on your part and on my part. God has drawn us. And that word to draw, it's used elsewhere in the Bible where it implies somebody's drawing something that has resistance. It was the same word that was used when the apostles were fishing and they cast their net out into the sea and then they drew in the net loaded with fish. It took effort. There was resistance. And that's 
the scripture where Jesus says, no one can come to him unless the Father who has sent him draws us. In spite of our resistance, because we put up resistance, don't we, when God calls us. Sometimes even though we've been a Christian for a while, we still resist sometimes when God's trying to correct us and show us the right thing to do. Because we still have this certain amount of stubbornness and human nature that we're still fighting, hopefully not as much as we used to, but we put up resistance, God sticks with us. He's determined. He keeps drawing us closer. He keeps working with us. And I've often wondered, now why am I here? <laughs> why did that kind of work with me and so many people out there who have no concept whatsoever of God and don't even believe necessarily that he exists? Here we all sit, a group of people that the awesome creator of the universe knows by name. He's chosen to restore us from death to life, eternal life, by sending his son here to individually pay our death penalty. And he continues, in spite of us sometimes, to remain loyal and faithful and true. That's a God who deserves my worship. Not just on a weekly basis, but on a daily basis. You know, in my own life, even when I'm not here at church, I'm thinking about God. I'm thankful to him. I think about, you know, the things that he's done in my life and continues to do, the opportunities he gives, gives me, the sins that he has forgiven me, and, and so on and so forth. That's the way we need to think of God on a regular basis. The Jews had come to the point where religion for them was just a ritual. It was just a formality. It was a place to show up maybe, put in your time, and then go on your way. They didn't see God the way God deserves to be seen. And you know, this whole thing about calling. The Bible isn't perfectly clear about when God calls people, how God calls people, or even who God calls. I can't speak for other people, but I know that I am called now. I am called here and now, and I have a responsibility that should come from my heart to worship God in a careful manner, a careful manner, not lackadaisical, not haphazardly. You know, we shouldn't come to church and, and think, man, this is a drag. Oh, I got to go to church again today. I got to put my time in. You know, I was raised in the Catholic Church as a young person, and my attitude wasn't always that great. But, you know, the Catholic Church, and some of you came out of the Catholic Church, they set up a rule so that you had to participate in three parts of the Mass every Sunday. And I forget exactly what they were. One was communion, of course. But as long as you were there, the Mass was, what, 45 minutes? As long as you were there for those three parts, you were okay. So what would people do? And what would I do sometimes? I would get there as late as I possibly could and still be there for the three important parts of the mass. And as soon as that third one was over, I was out the door. That's worshiping God in a careless manner. Okay, putting in your time, doing just what you have to do. And that's what Malachi was correcting the Jews about. Your whole attitude of worshiping God is wrong. You don't see the greatness of God. And if you don't see the greatness of God, it makes a person bored with God and excited about the world and all the things that money can buy. 
So what were they doing? Instead of bringing your best animal, you know, the spotless animal, the flawless animal, because it represented Jesus and his sinless life, you were carrying in an animal that had a broken leg and giving it to the priest saying, okay, here's my sacrifice today. What would lead you to do that? Well, money is more important to you. Why should I give God my best when I can sell that someplace else and make a profit? I'll give God whatever's left. Sometimes Christians get that attitude, even today. I'll give God what's left. You know, instead of kind of preparing my offering when I come to church and making sure that I give God something generous, something he really deserves and, and to honor him. When I get to church, I'll kind of look at my wallet. <laughs> there might be a couple bucks left in there and I'll stick that in the envelope or maybe give it anonymously, then people won't know how little I've given. And I'm not condemning you. You're a very generous bunch and I thank you for that. But that's the attitude sometimes that, that Christians have. God is not the priority in their life. It's other things. It's the world, the things of the world, money. The essence of careless worship is worthless religious activity or activity merely for the sake of activity. In my years in ministry, I've encountered people from time to time. I have to kind of scratch my head and wonder, why are you really coming here to church? I remember one particular individual who was, this goes back years ago, who was part of a church music group. And they enjoyed playing their musical instrument and participating. But other than that, there was no concept of God. And I remember one time this person said, you know, if I wasn't playing this piano or this guitar or whatever it was, I wouldn't be here. I come here because I like to uh, display my talents. But if I didn't have this job of playing this piano, I wouldn't be within 10 miles of this place. I thought to myself, what? What are you saying? Why, why do you come here? This is just a place for you to demonstrate your musical talent? I thought we come here to worship God. I thought it's because God is number one in our lives and we're gathering as a group of believers to lift up his name and to praise him. Sometimes people get stuck on a job that they have at church. And again, I'm speaking from many years of experience as a pastor here. I have found sometimes people come to church to perform their duty, and that's about it. That's what's important to them. And I appreciate the attitude of service. That's important for the church, but it's got to go beyond that. It got to the point over the years that somebody maybe had a particular job at church that they did once a month. They, that's the schedule, okay? They served maybe the first month or the first Sunday of the, of the month. But then it would get to the point that they would only come to church the first Sunday of the month to do their job. And the rest of the month, they wouldn't be there. And again, I'm scratching my head going, what is your purpose for being here? We're coming here to worship this great God, to remember what he's done for us, to, to, to think about our relationship with him and to grow closer and to realize we're going to be with him for all eternity. But you only come to church once a month because that's when you're scheduled for your duty. And like I said, thanks for your service. That's important. We all need to serve. But that's not the reason we're here. 
That's a side issue. And then again, over the years, and I'm not talking about this group, you know, a particular church would have a uh, potluck once a month. And people would show up for the potluck. <laughs> and the other three weeks, they wouldn't be there because they enjoyed the food or they liked sharing their food. And yeah, wonderful, share your food, cook your food, prepare, bring it in. But that's not the reason we're here. That's a side benefit, if you will. So it's funny, people have screwy ideas sometimes about why we're here. You can ask yourself the question today, why are you here? Did somebody force you to be here? Did somebody pressure you to be here? Or do you see God for who he is? And you want to be here because he's your life. And it's our duty, as the song said that we sang, you and I were made to worship. That's why God created us. And God isn't so self-centered that he demands worship. He deserves it. Don't you agree? And I think that's part of why he created us in the first place. He wanted to do something so overwhelming and spectacular. And I don't know who he had to prove it to. Maybe it was the angelic realm or, or whoever. But he came up with the idea that he was going to create this universe. Now, don't forget, God is spirit. And prior to this universe, everything he created was spirit, a different realm totally. But one day God said, this is what I'm going to do. And I'm going to do this to prove the kind of God I am. I'm going to create a physical universe, okay, planets, galaxies, constellations, and so on and so forth. And one particular planet, this planet Earth, out of this planet that I'm going to create, I'm going to make beings. I'm going to create these people from the dirt of this Earth, okay? They're going to be made of the substance that the planet is made out of. And I'm going to make them in my image. I'm going to form them, shape them. I'm going to breathe my spirit into them. And you know what? They're going to be total failures. They're going to sin and break whatever laws they give them. But I'm also going to send my son to this planet. And he's going to come in their form and in their shape. And he's going to die on the cross to pay the penalty for all the sins that these people I'm going to create are going to commit. And you know what? I'm going to put such a blessing on these people. If they respond to me and what I do to them, I am going to give them eternal life. And they're going to rule and reign with me forever. And whoever heard that plan, I'm sure was blown away by it. But this is what God has decided to do. And we are the recipients of this blessing. We are the recipients of this undeserved grace and mercy that he decided to show just to demonstrate the kind of God that he truly is, to make something out of nothing. And to the point that the scripture says in the future, we're even going to judge angels, whatever that means. But these prior spirit beings that he had created, they're going to be under our authority. <laughs> Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Why would God do that with us? That's why we're here. You know, when your kids come to you and say, 
why are we here? Well, how did we come to be here? Uh, you know, they're taught in school that we evolved from lower life forms. No, God straightens us out and tells us our real purpose for existence. And it's a purpose that is beyond imagination. Don't you think that this God deserves your careful worship instead of your careless worship? You know, here in Malachi, it, it tells us that uh, in verse 10, God is just so frustrated. He says, you know, what's going on at the temple is, is just a waste of time. Your heart isn't in it. You're not giving God the full credit that he deserves. He says, who is there, Malachi 1.10, who is there even among you who would shut the doors so that you would not kindle fire on my altar in vain? I have no pleasure in you. He said, I just prefer, you know, looking down on what's going on and what you call temple worship. Let's find the guy with the key, lock everybody out and just stay away. It would be better compared to what you are trying to do inside this temple. But there's a particular phrase here. He says, uh, I don't want you to kindle fire on my altar in vain. There's a little history to that phrase, and, and I want to turn back to, hold your place here, 2 Samuel 2, 2 Samuel 24, verse 24. Let's look there. 2 Samuel, I think there's an important meaning here. 2 Samuel 24, verse 24. This is the story of King David, and in his day, unfortunately, the land, God was causing plagues on the land because the people were sinning. And David got the word, he had to avert the plague, and what he had to do was he had to build an altar to worship God, to sacrifice to him, so that God would bring an end to the, to the plague. And what David did was he was looking around for a piece of property to buy uh, so that he could set up an altar there and start offering these sacrifices so that the plague will be stopped by God. Now, the story goes on here that the owner of the property, when he found out that what David wanted to do, he said to David, listen, you don't have to pay me any money for this. I'm going to give you the property, and furthermore, I'm going to give you the animals that you can sacrifice on the altar that you're going to build there so that the plagues can be stopped. And David said something interesting here in 2 Samuel 24, verse 24. Then the king David said to Arona, no, but I will surely buy it from you for a price, nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which costs me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. So David refused to receive this place of worship, this place to build an altar and the animals. He refused to receive it for free. And that's that same phrase, in vain. David said, I'm not going to worship God in vain by you donating all this to me. David said, I'm going to pay for it. Now, why did, he, why did he say that? He said, I'm not going to worship God in a way that costs me nothing. I'm not going to worship God in a way that costs me nothing. David 
wanted a cost to be involved. He wanted to have to pay. He wanted to have to sacrifice because it taught a lesson there. Careful worship of God requires you to pay. To pay what? Careful worship of God will require your time, your talent, your treasure, your energy, your focus, etc. In other words, I value God so much that I cannot worship him in a way that looks as if I love money more than I love him. It must cost me something. That's what David said. And I think that's a good attitude to have. You know, for us to be here today, it costs us something. You know, we're not home watching the football game. We're not doing whatever, you know, yard work around the house that could be done. Uh, we've spent money on gas to get here. We've brought God an offering. We're, you know, maybe using a certain talent that God has given us. We're certainly using energy. And a lot of us have only a limited amount of that these days. You know, it takes a lot of effort to get all ready, to get dressed, to drive to church, to drive back home, and so on and so forth. We can kind of be resting at home and conserving our energy. All of these things are required of us to worship God. But we need to learn to David, learn from David, rather. He didn't want to accept it for free. He said, if I'm going to worship God carefully, there's got to be a cost to me. And I'm willing to invest that cost because it's that important to me. Because God means that much to me. Whatever I do in worshiping God, it must say that he is my treasure and not the world not money, not anything else, not even family sometimes. I remember when I was young and I first started attending this church, uh, my parents tried to keep me from going. You know, I was raised Catholic and they said, well, you were baptized Catholic and you'll always be Catholic. And they would put pressure on me not to go to church. I was going on Saturday back in those, those years. And I said, no, this is more important to me. I got to do this. This is what God requires. So I became kind of the black sheep of the family, the one who went to church on Saturday back in those days rather than Sunday. But you know what? God brought me through it. So let's think about our worship of God. Yeah, this is a story from ancient history. And some people went off the deep end because they had the wrong attitude about God. We can fall into the same trap. We can get to the point where we look at church as, oh, why bother? It's boring. You know, uh, where's the excitement? They don't have a smoke machine here. They don't have, you know, spotlights flashing and real loud video music. We could have that if you want it. I don't think most of you would prefer it, but that's not what it's all about. We've come here with our heart in our hand to worship the God who has done so much for us, to remember him, his greatness, God-pleasing worship. God-pleasing worship expresses the feeling of God's value and greatness to you personally, to you personally. And, and if you don't feel that, maybe you need to think about that more on a daily basis, what God means to you, what it means to know him, what it means about the future you have in store with him. It comes from the heart where God is treasured above everything else. That's the essence of worship. So we can only take a personal inventory of our relationship with God 
And think about, you know, Sunday mornings when you start getting ready to come here, why are you coming? Well, it's not the food at this present time. <laughs> Maybe it used to be, but uh, it could be your service here. It could be seeing old friends, nothing wrong with those things. It's coming here to just remember God and to give him what he deserves. Not just as a group, but from each of us personally and to put our heart into it every time. Heavenly Father, thank you for helping us to see a little bit more clearly what worship is all about, what careful worship is all about, what God-pleasing worship is all about. You are number one. You are, you are the creator. You are the savior. You are everything to us, and we love you for it. But help us to grow in our worship of you. Help it to come from the heart. And help us not just to worship on Sunday afternoon, but throughout the rest of the week. And to come here ready and prepared to just lift up your name with all the honor and majesty it deserves. We love you. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.